Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of The Dreamcast, a podcast created by the students of the Otis Music Camp in Macon, Georgia. Each episode of The Dreamcast will feature stories and conversations with exceptional artists from our hometown of Macon, Georgia, and around the world. For the second part of this two-part special, we continue the conversation with American media proprietor and record executive Michael Molden to learn about his latest role as co-founder of the Black American Music Association, or BAM. He talks about the mission of the professional trade organization to preserve, protect, and promote the legacy and the future of authentic Black American music as an indigenous art form. He shares with us plans for BAM to install the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame, which will be located in historic downtown Atlanta. He even offers insight into what it takes to be nominated as an inductee and some people he's got his eye on. In addition, he tells some fascinating stories about his time working with artists like Alicia Keys, his son Jermaine Dupree, and many others. You've worked with so many influential people on still like some of like, I mean, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, Destiny's Child, everyone. I was wondering which of the newer musicians and artists you are most impressed by? That era, because, you know, now it's crazy because all of those artists are Alicia, Beyonce, Alicia not as much, well, kind of. Um, they, you know, in order to be recognized in the industry, to be able to get your um name on the sidewalks in Atlanta for the Walk of Fame, you've got to have at least 20 years of experience, right? And it's crazy because now all those artists have 20 years. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, where'd that time come from? But in the 90s, I would have to say Alicia Keys. And, you know, it's crazy. I know I mentioned to y'all about child being added to Destiny. I did it with Alicia and it's no joke. And she said it many times and, and you know, you might have seen it, but um, <laughs> we didn't know what we wanted to call it. Well, first of all, I was really impressed. I went to Alicia's high school graduation. She was um, born in, she lived in New York and was raised in an area in New York City, right in the city called Hell's Kitchen, which is uh, very um, hard on the streets and with her mom. And um, at 16, she graduated from high school, right in the city. And she was the valedictorian of the class. And I actually went there and I joked her because she had won a full scholarship to Columbia University in the process. And of course, her and Jeff Robinson, who managed her for a while and now manages the young lady, her as well. Uh, Jeff and, and Alicia them was really, you know, trying to get her stopped. And she was really originally in a group. So, you know, as Alicia came out, she could play and she wore Tim's and she had her hair braided and she was very much... Uh, on point, but most of the time she was just playing covers like a Stevie Wonder or Brian McKnight. Or, and I was just impressed because I, I viewed Alicia as a stylist, like a vocal stylist. Not, I mean, she can sing, but not that she's necessarily was the greatest singer of all time. But what she represented and did was so unique and on point. Yeah, there was other female artists that had done it, but in current time, having a very, been from New York City, a very hip hop state of mind and a very, um, you know, urban leaning, meaning inner city leaning state of mind and just being able to put so much soul and feel in what she was doing in her own way. I fell in love with that. 
And I, I was determined to make that happen for her. There was no doubt about it. So along the way, her, obviously her name was Alicia, uh, but actually her name, her mom's name was Ajello. Her mom is Italian and her dad's last name was Cook. So it's Alicia Ajello Cook. So of course she didn't want to be Alicia Cook. She definitely wasn't coming out being Alicia Ajello. So, you know, people were talking about, well, she didn't be Alicia. And then um, her cousins always called her Lelo for whatever reason. So at one point, she may be mad at me for telling this, but, but at one point, she was really thinking about calling herself Lelo, right? And I don't know, I swear, this is the honest truth, and I tell people all the time, it was snowing really bad in New York City. I think this was 96, 97. And I, um, Saturday morning, and I woke up, and for some reason, Alicia, Alicia, I'd been talking about it all night, Alicia, Alicia, and Keys just like, it was just there. It was like, Alicia Keys. Wow, Alicia Keys. Damn, that sounds familiar to me, Alicia Keys. Do I know an Alicia Keys? And I started going through my head, and I couldn't, I'm like, I don't know an Alicia Keys. So I called Jeff Robinson. And I'm like, man, I think we should call Alicia, Alicia Keys. Jeff was quiet on the other end. Then he got Alicia on the phone. She was quiet on the other end. And um, and I remember going back to Columbia on Monday. Now, of course, mind you, I'm the president of Black Music at Columbia Records. So a lot of people say, of course she went along with you because you're naming the But anyway, um, I went back in and said, okay, listen, we're going to call Alicia, Alicia Keys. And I remember someone I really, really respect a lot, uh, Mai Huggins. Uh, Mai was my product manager, and I had her dealing with Alicia. And she thought it was great, but then she's like, well, well, Michael, did you think about that because she plays keyboards? And this is the honest God truth. I had never even thought about it. Maybe it was in the back of my mind, but until she said it, it didn't even hit me. Well, you know, but maybe. It was, and and again, history goes on. And next thing you know, Alicia running around the country with a, a key chain, with a key hanging off of her chain, and and um, but that uh, to me was probably one of the more passionate things. And here's a story that is for the records, honestly, and it's written. Um, I left Columbia Records in 1999. I'd been there almost four years, and I came from the outside. Uh, we had an amazing, amazing run for black music. We took an, a, 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 de, a department that was making still a lot of money, don't get me wrong, a department that was making $40 million a year to be making $250 million a year when I got ready to leave, right? So we made an amazing impact. However, the folks that was in charge after I left and, and the folks that was in charge of me, even the senior folks at Sony and everything, decided that they wanted to bring some outside folks in to work with Alicia, outside producers. And every time I would suggest that to Alicia, she would show up at my office the next Monday. I'd usually suggest that toward the end of the week. Alicia, man, I like what you're doing, but we need some bigger songs. We need something that's gonna feel more, I need, need some, Alicia would show up every Monday with a whole new group of songs for me to listen to. She was so determined she was gonna do her own thing that I just, um, I bought that, I bought into it. And I believed at the end of the day, you know what? I think you are making the stuff that can work. 
We just got to find, we still may need. So I got in touch with Dwayne Wiggins, with Tony Tony, or these people like that that I felt like could really help enhance her sound. Um, and I say that because I held it close. I believed in her. I made that my quote unquote pet project inside, even though I had my son and his record label of So So Deaf, and we were doing all kinds of stuff. And that was part of Columbia as well. So we were overseeing all that. But when I left Columbia, they insisted on Alicia changing her album and felt like it wasn't um, the quality of work that she needed to be putting out. And Alicia and Jeff called me and Alicia down there in tears and couldn't believe it. And, and um, folks was like, well, you know, Michael Malden, he was just kind of controlling it and not letting whatever, whatever. So long and skinny, they told Alicia that if she didn't uh, want to go along with the program of, of having other people work on her music that they would give her, and I think it was a, a bluff, but that they would give her a release. Guess what they did? Gave Alicia a release because she definitely did not want to do that. And to be 17, I think she was 18 at the time, to be 18 years old with that kind of passion and drive and belief in herself and what she was doing and determined that it would work because why? She had a Jeff Robinson in her corner, but she also had someone like Michael Malden that was championing it. And prior to someone else telling her that it wasn't working, uh, I've been saying this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. So she felt very confident and believed in that. And um, lo and behold, uh, there was another gentleman, um, Mr. Clive Davis, who had been interested in Alicia from day one uh, through another guy who now is the president of RCA, um, Peter. And um, Peter was at the time was trying to be an A&R. So he grabbed Alicia and heard that I was going to be leaving and whatever. And Sony was letting her go, uh, took a couple of tracks to Clive that she was already doing. Uh, Alicia called me and asked me would I help her and Jeff manipulate and basically step in to be a co-manager um, after the fact. So we um, collectively took Alicia, and I remember going the first time sitting down in front of Clive Davis, myself and Alicia, and playing music and talking about what it needs to be. The long and skinny, obviously Alicia gets signed. Clive ends up having to leave Arista Records. Clive gets a new label that he could do called J Records. Clive Davis, a very controlling individual, whether Bruce Springsteen or if you look at everything, he was always had his hands in it, no matter how old he was. He allowed Alicia to do the record that she wanted to do. He allowed Alicia to play the music that she wanted to play. And guess what? Sony gave Alicia all her music back. And therefore, I believe five of the 12 songs that was on her album was part of the music that we had recorded in 1996, 97 with Alicia. And uh, that was amazing to me. First of all, people don't give you back your music. And it was just ego. And that was something for her to be able to walk away and say, you know what? I knew it. And and she's told me thank you many times, although she's made millions of saying that. And I'm like, wait, wait, what about me? No, but it, <laughs> but uh, but, you know, they've done She's done amazing. And now as she's hosting the Grammys and doing this and doing that world class artists um, sold out concerts everywhere. It really just does my heart great to see that and see that she's made that move. That's my long way of saying that's probably one of my more favorite artists and favorite projects that I worked with.
you've kind of dropped a little bit um, here and there in talking about one of the projects of the Black American Music Association, which is, you know, this Black Walk of Fame. Yeah. Um, that you all are looking. It sounds like it's going to be located in Atlanta. And you yep. also dropped that, you know, to be considered, you have to have at least 20 years in the game. So can yeah. you talk to us a little bit more about the criteria of being featured? Like, you know, I mean, and do you know where the Walk of Fame is going to be? Oh, Just no tell doubt. us a little bit about it. Well, last Thursday, we had a uh, reception in Atlanta where we actually um, gave the quote unquote the nominees, the first names, and there's a total of like 38 people that we put out there. However, we're only inducting 10 or 13, and I'll tell you why I'm saying 10 or 13 uh, in just a second, but it's supposed to be 10, but I think it's gonna be 13, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, and right now, yes, the Walk of Fame is gonna be uh, in downtown Atlanta, but located on MLK Junior Drive, right at the corner of Northside and MLK, um, right adjacent to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So our partners in this endeavor is Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, the Georgia World Congress Center Authority, uh, the city of Atlanta, state of Georgia, and a bunch of others. And, um, and so our goal, again, is, you know, we want to be very careful and not, not appear to be an Atlanta thing or a Georgia thing. Um, but be a national or an international thing. And, you know, at first, when we decided to induct, we wanted to have what we call foundational inductees. And in those foundational inductees, it's crazy because most of the artists of the 60s and early era was from Georgia, believe it or not. Um, so, you know, the ones that jumped out at us was Ray Charles, James Brown, Otis Redding, Gladys Knight, uh, Little Richard. All of these are artists, Lena Horne. People don't even have a clue that all these are, well, some people do, but a lot of folks don't, that these are all Georgia artists or Georgia actors. And on top of that, even though we started out focused on music with this Walk of Fame, it is called Black Music and Entertainment. So with the Georgia now being such a huge mover in the way of film and TV and some of those other pieces and even dance. And they're some of the best choreographers in the state of Georgia or Atlanta. Uh, we are broadening it out to everybody, but we wanted this first induction to be music related and music artists. Um, and we're also recognizing songwriters. We're gonna recognize producers. We're gonna recognize, and our goal is to be just like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, that eventually this will be a um, be a tourist attraction that people can come to all of, from all over the world, and there'll be a reason to come down and see the name of their some of their folks and see what year and all they were inducted. And hopefully, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, uh, you, your kids, and and even maybe some of their kids uh, can be walking down around there and recognize what we are putting down to be uh, something of history and historic and. So we're really excited about that. And, um, you know, we, we probably will be inducting anywhere from, I just thir said 13, but we'll probably be inducting anywhere from 20 after this year. Uh, we're supposed to ideally open this up in 2020. So again, that was another thing that COVID uh, played a, a, a role in, but it's worked itself out. So here we go. Um, and we will probably be doing it twice a year as far as an actual induction goes. 
Um, and each time we will probably induct at least 10 people at a time. And we hope that obviously each year somebody else reaches that 20 mark, somebody reaches. And we are, we do have a hip hop category. I uh, don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but there is a press release floating around. Um, and I'll make sure that um, Carl and them has it. Maybe they can share it with you uh, just as you all button this up. But the press release um, acknowledges three artists right now that are foundational artists for us. And that is none other than Mr. Otis Redding, who will definitely be inducted in June. Um, Mr. James Brown, who will definitely be inducted in June. And Mr. Quincy Jones, who will be inducted in June. We have a very strong um, voting committee, as we call nominations committee, of like, um, I think there's a total of 15 people, really 18 people, because you have some alternates that are like just some of the more predominantly powerful minded and, and influential folks in the black American music business uh, or entertainment business. And so those decisions are not mine or they're not anyone's in particular. It's just a group of folks and it gets all narrowed down and voted down. So that's kind of the process. But we're excited about it because it is forward facing. It's something that we can talk about. Uh, but let me just tell you, um, the Black American Music Association is something that I'm extremely proud of altogether. And um, our mission is to preserve, protect, and promote the legacy and the future of authentic Black American music, its culture, its community, and the art form itself. That's our entire mission of that. So anything that we can do to lift. That being said, the year of 2022, which I can't believe is now only 10 months from now, is designated as the year of Black American music. There will be, which hopefully you guys will talk about, and hopefully Carla will allow us to even put on her website at some point, um, Yobam, Y-O-B-A-M, year of Black American music, is the year of 2022. Whereas we will be recognizing Black American music each and every month of that year in some way, shape, form. Not Black History Month being February and not just Black Music Month being the month of June, but the entire year. And for that year, we have a lot of initiatives and other things that will come along and play. And of course, we'll continue to do our inductions of the Walk of Fame. But there are other things, including a Black American Music Award show, uh, a lot of other stuff. It all won't be taking place in Atlanta. It all won't be taking place in Georgia or California or New York. But we're going to move different things around. There will be chapter-oriented programs. So as you can well imagine, we're pretty busy right now. So going back uh, to the question where you asked me about the year uh, or COVID, all of this has been born out of the COVID era. And so when you think about it, I say, even though it was an idea back in 17 and 18 and going into 19, 20 made us realize we got to push the button and move or put us in a position where we could push the button and move this whole thing forward. So we're real excited about what those opportunities are. But the year of BAM is going to be huge and big. We have a lot of partnerships that will be announced probably over the next six months of various uh, other organizations coming on, being a part of BAM. And um, yeah, I'm just excited. And, I, and you know, I'm, yeah, I'm a founder along with Meg Gidry, but I'm also the chairman of the Black American Music Association. So 
you know, it's um, it's a good thing. And I'm talking to you. So, hey, can't get no better than that, you know? 20 years from the, the inauguration of the first inducted musicians, who is new in the music scene this year or in the last two or three years do you expect to be inducted like 20 years from this year? Woo, that's a good one right there. I like that question. That's really hard too. Because here's the thing. For us, it means more than just making hit records. For us, it means more than just being able to be a great beat maker or a great lyricist or a great whatever. It really is about what you do in your community. It is about the way you move the needle, thought provoking. You know, um, it's so funny because I was telling somebody the other day, um, I applaud the people that, um, that put together the whole Black Lives Matter piece, right? That is a global phenomenon to the point that um, they're now nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And I say that because no, it's not music. No, it's not just a little bit of everybody. It's about the community and it's about everybody getting behind it. But the truth of the matter is the impact that they have made, the movement that they have done to help move this nation, and not just the United States, but all across the world, to move the needle, to get people thinking out of the box, to just bring things forward, is what I'm talking about with the Walk of Fame. We want to make sure that the artists we're putting in, like, Otis Redding didn't have, you know, a high school education, right? But at the same time, his thought process of kids having an education or kids being able to learn about music. And as Carla, bless her heart, gave me props or credit for starting, uh, helping to start this foundation with her mom and her. Yeah, I felt like it was the greatest thing to do because when I found out the story that Mrs. Redding would talk about and the people that Otis would invite while he was still living out on their farm and uh, out at the ranch and barbecues and the things they'd want to give back and the way they were always giving back, I felt like it was an ideal thing to do. Uh, to answer your question further, that's what the Walk of Fame means to me. So when you see artists that are making a difference and I bring up, like I could easily see 20 years from now, but they can't get it down. But even what uh, the people with Black Lives Matter has contributed would be in the ground, uh, if you may, on a, in some way. And I, because it was so significant globally, it ties into everybody. It affected music, it affects entertainment, it affects community. And then there's others, you know, um, and, and we got to be real about it. I mean, there's there's some hip hop artists today that are making really big noise. And I know hip hop leads the way. Um, so some of those um, that are currently out there, some a little more questionable than others, like will they be around five years from now or will they be around 10 years from now? But that's also been a part of it, not only coming out 20 years ago, but continuing unless the good large soul need to take them away from him as they did Mr. Redding. But you look around and you see the Otis Redding name and brand and foundation is still going. So you know there was power. The James Brown name and everything, even though he continued for years and years and years, but his daughters are still carrying forth with their foundation for the Brown. So it's something that continues to drive the narrative and affects, again, community in a positive way. So that's, that's what we see. When we did our um, announcement last week, 
Um, Christopher Bridges, um, we know him as Ludacris. He, um, he made the announcement with us. He was one of the ones that announced some of the nominees, so he came in there. But Chris is right on the verge of 20 years. He hadn't been as an artist for 20 years, so he wasn't able to be nominated. But I would honestly say, I'm pretty sure in the years to come, maybe even as early as next year, year after, I'm trying to remember when his 20 year mark comes in, but I'm pretty sure Chris Bridges, whose name will be on and probably at some point be inducted, you know? Uh, even my son, Jermaine, Jermaine Dupree. So Jermaine himself at some point, um, his name is in the big list, but we view him more on the producer side. So I'm sure at some point he'll be nominated and at some point he'll probably be inducted as well. The profound impact, um, influence, exposure, experience that you have had in and with and through the entertainment community like i i just i know we haven't even scratched the surface because it's like you would just drop these little tidbits and and we would be ready to just kind of go <laughs> off but then we would be here. Yeah. well we would be here for for 10 hours honestly <laughs> if we started to just really go in every direction because there are just so many nuggets there but honestly um i know personally i am just super excited to see the work that you all are doing with the Black American Music Association and to to as one who lives in Atlanta to have the honor of experiencing the Walk of Fame as it is realized um and you know also I mean as y we know the world has been influenced by black music so like you said it's it regardless of race everybody has been impacted so I think that it'll be a very important um, historical marker for the world. Um, so I could, I could totally foresee it, 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 it um, having that tourist effect. But um, Mr. Malden, we are so grateful to have gotten this chance to interview you. Um, when Ms. Carla sent out the email, I was like, what? <laughs> So, um, so thank you so much for being with us, for sharing um, just some of your stories, sharing your insights, your wisdom. Um, it's, I, I, you know, I've, I don't know if you saw me over here. I was taking all of my notes, and I know that the students, um, you know, really, really got from it, and I think the audience is gonna get a lot from it as well. So, thank you so much. You're more than welcome. And I'll just say, you know, just keep doing it. Um, you know, um, in one way or the other, um, a lot of times I say, well, man, I'm I'm blessed or I'm fortunate. And some people even call it lucky. Um, you know, maybe, right? But I always say this, and I know, again, it's another one of those things that you hear that's kind of coined. Um, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And I have to honestly say, uh, without knowing I was prepared, I was prepared. And without knowing um, the opportunity was coming, the opportunity was coming. Um, did I know when? Did I know how? I didn't. Um, the fact that I bought my son drums at the age of three years old, I had no idea he was going to become one of the, uh, a Hall of Fame songwriter right now. And, uh, you know, I had no idea. I watched him. I watched him come up to see how talented he was. I saw opportunity. I didn't just put him on the band with Otis and Dexter 
because he was my son. He really could scratch and do what he did. I didn't put him on stage with Herbie Hancock or have him dance with Cameo because he was my son. So it was really me taking, and, and actually in the humility of that, almost being ashamed of it to some degree, believe it or not. And I'll say this as a black man in that era, I, I'm being very real about this. Um, I didn't want people thinking that because his name was Jermaine Malden, that he was, that his dad was just hooking him up, right? Because he was really talented. So we elected to go by his middle name, which was Dupree. So it's actually Jermaine Dupree Malden. And no one, you know, people didn't know. So for the longest, for years, a lot of folks, unless you knew, a lot of folks didn't know that Jermaine was even my dad. I mean, I was his dad until he said, would say, oh, you talk to my dad about that. And even then, you know, people like Snoop Dogg and Nelly and them, they call me Pops all the time. Pops, what's going on? Pops, what's going on? So even then, people just thought it was an affectionate way of him just responding. You know, they didn't know we were actually blood, father and son. And, um, and you know, and sometimes I beat myself up a little bit as to if that should have been what I did, but obviously it should have been, you know, if, you know, I sometimes say, well, wow, why didn't I just say, oh, Malden, you know, but I never felt like Malden was a stage name. So even when I was performing on stage, I was in a band, so you didn't hear Michael Malden in the band, you know, it was like I was a drummer, and oh, that's Mike playing drums, right? So it was never that to me, and um, I just I just went with it, and I would suggest to all you guys and, and, and everyone that you're talking to push the envelope because it'll happen. If you want it to happen, just focus on it and do it. I promise you it'll happen. It may not happen the way you think it's gonna happen, but it will happen. Thank you guys for taking the time to talk to me today and I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for listening to season two, episode five of the Dreamcast with Michael Malden. The Otis Redding Foundation would like to thank the following people and organizations for their continuous support. The Otis Redding Estate, the Otis Redding Foundation, the Knight Foundation, Georgia Council for the Arts, the Community Foundation of Central Georgia, the United Way of Central Georgia. The Dreamcast is produced by Jamie Alilaw and Matt Miller with student journalists Christopher Timothy, Jocelyn Rowley, Malika Alilaw, and Hayden Nichols. Our theme music was composed and performed by Zach Wilson. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Dreamcast.